You are listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church. We are a community in Madison, Wisconsin, who gathers to worship, to learn, to serve, and to grow together in God's love. Please visit us online at www.covenantmadison.org, where you can find information about Covenant Ministries, as well as links to our online worship services and sermon podcasts. Well, good morning. First off, thank you to those readers for sticking with it, with the longer passages and the different things. I think it'll be, uh, it'll be coming together here, but I want to thank you so much for reading. Uh, my name is Tyler Nyland. I'm an associate pastor at Fountain of Life Covenant Church, where I serve under Reverend Dr. Alex G. Uh, and so I bring his greetings. And uh, he, the last time I talked about coming to Covenant Presbyterian, he was thrilled, and he just has such warm, fond memories about Covenant, particularly in its help in founding Nehemiah, which is our Center for Urban Leadership Development, where we work to address racial injustice in the city from a black-led perspective um, in, in, in all those things. So we, he, he's very thankful, and I'm thankful to be back with you. I was here in May, able to just share a little mission moment, as well as the summer, uh, or just a little uh, Sunday school moment with you all. Uh, about our Black History course, and Pastor Charlie reached out, and so I must uh, not—I must have done okay. I must have been okay enough to be uh, invited back. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful for Pastor Charlie uh, giving me this uh, space uh, to share and and speak. I'm also thankful because he's dropped, I think, a couple times the word fiance, which has been fun for me to hear. Because uh, since we last were together, uh, I did get engaged to Haley, and that's been about two days now that we've been engaged. So. Yes, so you all are the first real group of people, aside from the people there, who we got to really celebrate with in this setting. So I'm, I'm really thankful that you all welcome us and are celebrating with us in that way. Um, I would like to say that I have been a Madisonian now. I think I'm beginning to identify as a Madisonian and a Wisconsinite. Uh, I've been here for five years now. I've been on staff and working at Nehemiah Fountain of Life for about five years. Uh, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, so in our south. You all have a really mean acronym you all have for us in Illinois. Uh, but I think I've gotten over that because I think Wisconsin really is better. Uh, it's just a blessing to, to be in Madison. There's so many things that I really love. Obviously, it's easier to think about those things right now in the summer, but when I think about farmer's markets and I, I think about how, how that's just, just a true joy, when I think about concerts on the square, I used to, um, this is the first summer I actually got to go see concerts on the square because normally I'm teaching Bible study on Wednesday nights, but this year I actually had the opportunity to go and it was awesome. Madison summers are just wonderful. I love being able to go to the restaurants. We love going to the terrace. That's something that we love to do is just walk over to the terrace on on a night, and uh, also I am a massive fan of coffee shops. And so I have literally a ranking and listing of my favorite coffee shops in the city. I, I'm able to do a lot of work in coffee shops, which is a blessing, and so I have that. And so when I just think about Madison, I think of a place that feels like home, a place that I'm beginning to adjust into, and a place that I really, really love. It's interesting because Madison gets typically ranked in the top 10 best places to live on all these different things. There was one called livability where that's the case. And I certainly, as myself as a white male, feel that, feel it very strongly, and I sense that. Meanwhile, um, as our organization likes to point out and help 
to identify. Uh, while it may be one of the top 10 places to live, we have some of the worst statistics brought about for our black community, in particular, let alone other individuals of color and communities of color. We have some of the worst statistics there. We're often in the top 10 worst places to live in the United States, not Mississippi, not the South, us, Madison. Our, our liberal progressive Madison is one of the worst places to live according to the Race to Equity report in 2011. And we continue to see time and time after again through the work of my senior pastor, Reverend Dr. Alex G, those realities. When I go to work every day, um, I'm surrounded by the stories of my colleagues, my black colleagues who come off of a day and they just share, this is what happened with my child at school today. This is what happened in my community. This is how I was misprofiled for a homeless individual at a Starbucks and not given uh, a cup of ice that I asked for and told not allowed. I, I encounter so many different stories with my colleagues day after day that whereas in a place like Madison where I can feel so at home and so accepted for my colleagues and the people that I love in my congregation, oftentimes they feel the very opposite. They feel that this is not a place of acceptance or home for them. That they wish if God hadn't really sensed that they, God was ha having them here that they'd like to go back to Atlanta. They'd like to go back to places, which is why we hope that our Center for Black Excellence that Pastor G uh, is raising, raising funds for is, is a place that helps to create those spaces, but it doesn't change the fact that that's often how I see them feeling. We have that combination of a place of acceptance and home, and at the same time, a place of not feeling like home or welcome. Today, uh, we want to be talking about a passage that highlights how God includes the excluded and accepts those we won't. You may have noticed that in Acts 8, uh, that there is this story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this is a story that may be a little bit more common than the Isaiah passage, but still maybe not all of us know. Again, a summary of it is essentially Philip, a disciple, is... Um, he, he senses God's call to go into this specific place, and there is an Ethiopian eunuch who is traveling on the road, who has come back from Jerusalem, and this Ethiopian eunuch is heading back to Ethiopia as, after he has worship. I find this character extremely, extremely intriguing, because I find it so interesting, because in one sense, and, and we'll see as it ties into the passage in Isaiah that talks about foreigners and eunuchs, he is showing up in Israel as a foreigner. He is someone of a, of a different ethnic background, a different racial background, a different geographic background. He's someone who's coming from, from there, and, and he was serving for Queen Candace, who, and he was the financial treasurer, which means he oversaw the entire budget for like the entire country of Ethiopia or the entire region that Candace, that's a pretty big deal. Like, that, that's the CFO of the whole place. That's, that's a big deal. And so it's this person who has so much power and influence in that country, but also at the same time, intriguingly, identifies and has this static as a eunuch or someone who's had their reproductive abilities taken away at this point. Now, it's interesting. We, we don't necessarily know why or how this person became a eunuch. Was it uh, were they sensing it was a place of um, pride for their nation, that they could serve in this way? 
Maybe. Maybe it was a cost that comes at the expense of having this privilege and access in this space because they would prevent um, men in this space, especially in the presence of a queen and having that close of access from that space. We don't necessarily know exactly, but we do know that eunuchs in this time dealt with shame quite often. Not only were they not able to carry on a family line, but what did family lines mean? It meant support. It meant family, familial, long-term care. It meant the ability to have people who would look after them in their older age. It meant all of these different things, the status. And so, intriguingly, this Ethiopian eunuch has these various levels of privilege and lack of privilege at the same time, dealing with shame. He's a very interesting, interesting character. So I just want to note that, intriguingly. And it's interesting, too, to me, that this Ethiopian eunuch has decided to travel all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. Now picture this experience. You've done this whole pilgrimage all the way there and heading to make the long journey home now after having been shut out of being able to have the closest access to God's presence. Now, if you remember the way that the temple was set up, right? So you had access for men here. You had access for women and other Israelites here. But there was a lack of access for foreigners is the way it was set up. Foreigners could only go so far in, and eunuchs couldn't either at all. Eunuchs were excluded as well. Now, I don't necessarily know why or how this was set up in the temple system, because these were the people of God, right? This, this was a system that was set up, and I've looked everywhere in Scripture, and I don't see anywhere where it identifies that says in the temple, foreigners and eunuchs need to be excluded from a way or they're not allowed to get as close. I don't, if, if anyone finds that, please actually reach out to me. I would love to see that because I, I haven't found it. And so I find it intriguing that the people of God would set up the system this way. I'm just, just making notes here. Just some interesting things here. But I think what it must do in that situation, what, what I imagine this Ethiopian eunuch who has come all this way, and I don't know if he knew if he would or wouldn't have access or not. Again, I'm just raising questions, but I imagine when you get that entire pilgrimage all the way to worship God as it says, and you can only enter in so far, I imagine that the questions that might be asked are, will I be excluded from the people of God because I'm a foreigner? Will God exclude me from his presence? And am I a dry tree? Do I have any fruit to bear? What do I have to contribute to the people of God as an Ethiopian eunuch who may not be allowed the same access that others have? Yet still with curiosity and faithfulness in the middle of it, we see that he is still pondering over and reading the Isaiah scroll on his way home. Something must have happened. There must be something inside this Ethiopian eunuch that is deep inside, that is resonating with God, that is, that is pursuing God, that is going on in there. And I can't help but think where he's reading in Isaiah is actually even more providential than we could have ever expected. So the reason I say this is he's reading this scroll. Isaiah 53, 7 is, is the space in the scroll he's reading. And it says he was led like sheep to the slaughter. We know this as, as a uh, prophetic space that's trying to call out and point out to where Jesus is going to be, who Jesus was, how he died for us. But if I'm Philip, 
and I see that this is where the Ethiopian eunuch is in in Isaiah, I've got to be jumping out of my seat excited. And the reason I say this is because just a couple chapters later, we have the passage that we have. And if you remember, or if you, if you know, in that time period, there weren't chapter headings, there weren't verses, there weren't Isaiah 56. That's there to help us be able to find where all of us are talking about in a passage, right? So when I say Isaiah 56, you can get there quickly and easily and figure out where we're at. That wasn't there at this time in the scroll. So this Ethiopian eunuch is reading, and they're about right here. And the passage that we have from Isaiah is probably right about here, somewhere in there. So I imagine Philip, when he sees these words that are written, just gets excited. And sometimes I think when we see things in Scripture that are pointing back to Old Testament things, we, we, we look at them as markers and say, oh, let's, let's actually look and read. So, so in light of that, in light of what we've just talked about with Philip, or with the Ethiopian eunuch, who he is, and what his experience may have just been, I want us to reread Isaiah 56 in light of that. And so I'm going to read it here. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbaths without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. The foreigners in this passage are not excluded. In fact, when they say to themselves, the Lord will surely exclude me, the Lord says, absolutely not. The eunuchs who say, I'm only a dry tree, I have nothing really to contribute I may not have anything for me. He says, I'm going to give you a name inside my temple walls, as it says, better than sons and daughters, even better than that longing. I imagine that the eunuch who has just experienced what he's experienced reads these with Philip. Now, again, I'm speculating a little bit, but I have a hard time imagining Philip doesn't go <laughs> as he's telling the good news of Jesus that says because of Jesus, because of this slaughtered lamb, because of this suffering servant who we're reading about right here, you have freedom and you are accepted and God does not reject you or have you stand outside of your temple walls because of this. 
you are free and I will give you an inheritance and a name and a presence and an acceptance. I think I would probably also be doing what this Ethiopian eunuch does and want to get, say, what keeps me from getting baptized right now? So if there are any places in your life where shame presents itself in a way that based on your identity or based on something about who you feel like you are, that you feel that you will ask these questions, will I be accepted? I feel like a foreigner to God. I feel like a foreigner to God's people. I feel like a dry tree. I feel like someone who may not have anything to contribute. I think one thing we have to learn from this is that if you feel that way, if you love God, God loves and accepts and brings you within his temple walls of his presence. God wants to lift you up and to declare his love over you. I think the tougher question, though, becomes just like how we look at this and we see that the people of God sometimes can set up places and systems that keep people from feeling at home, that keep people from feeling included, that keep people from feeling like they have anything to contribute, that we may have to ask the question, who are we making to feel like foreigners in our communities? Who are we making to feel like eunuchs in our communities, that they have nothing to contribute, that they're only a dry tree? Regardless of whether our intentions are to do that or not, regardless of whether our intentions are the, the purest motivation, which is, which, is, which is that, but sometimes we don't realize that our impact might not equal our intent. These individuals wanted to serve God with the best of their ability and still could have caused places to make foreigners and eunuchs feel like maybe I'll be excluded by God. It was the people of God who were part of this process. And I think too often, the people of God continue to be part of this process. If you've read The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby, which documents the history of how the church in particular has systemically created places that promote anti-justice rather than justice, you know what I'm talking about. I think the real tough thing in the middle of this, though, it ends up becoming, what does unity look like? My senior pastor, Dr. G, preached a series this summer called The Power of Unity. And the distinct nature of it that comes from a context where it's not led from a white-led perspective, which often says, just get over any differences. Just don't worry about them. Just, just remove them. Let's just feel good. Let's just move it forward. But unity is not the absence of conflict or differences or disagreements, nor the demand that every be, everybody be uniformly the same or fit into a uniform structure, particularly a structure placed by those in power. But the loving commitment to see disagreements, differences, and conflicts, and to choose to love anyway. I heard we have a great celebration of 60 years of marriage today, which is just incredible. Uh, I'm very excited that that's a thing that happened. I got to meet that couple beforehand. And I just need to say, I doubt that they went into it and everything was perfect for the next 60 years. <laughs> Am I right? 
I, I bet there were some disagreements. I bet there were some things that were going through, but I imagine that that loving commitment in marriage meant that you still showed up every day with each other. That in the middle of that disagreement, in the middle of places where things might come about, and by the way, Haley and I are gonna be taking notes, so if you wanna write down any lessons, we, need, we, we wanna be able to learn some of your wisdom, but the ability to show up and to stay committed in the middle of it, the ability to say, I'm gonna show up and love in this space no matter what. If you are interested in getting involved in cross-cultural, multicultural, cross-multi-ethnic work or you want that space to be, I need to just declare and state from this that it, it's, if it's, if you just wanna feel good or experience that kumbaya, nice, peaceful inner feeling, do not do it. It is very difficult. Um, five years into this work, I don't always feel good. In fact, I have work situations just happened this week that intersect a lot of things where it's like, oh man, like this is tough stuff, working together and noticing all the different, like noticing everything working together. If we feel like it's to produce kumbaya or to feel good, it's not gonna work. Because as part of unity, unity normalized is not I feel good. Unity normalized is I may not feel good, but I'm gonna choose this person. I'm gonna choose this work. I'm gonna choose this in the middle of it and we're gonna work through it together. And recognizing the different dynamics of power and privilege that come to play. It is much more costly for those without power and privilege to choose unity. It's much more costly, much more frustrated, much more, much more things going on. It is much, because we always have the option, myself, I'm gonna name myself as a white, straight, male, has the option to kind of disengage whenever I want. In Madison, I can disengage and hop into any context I want where I can enter back into my space of feeling at home. But churches like Fountain of Life or the heritage which, which my church comes from, a black church context, black Pentecostal context, has always, for centuries now, chosen to still love us in the middle, has always chosen to show up, show up has always chosen in the middle of it um, to, be, to be part, and I think that's significant, to recognize the cost and account for that privilege. I wanna close with just a story to illustrate perhaps a different way of choosing to make people feel at home. This past week, I was blessed with the privilege of being able to be kind of a host or a guide for someone who came and visited our organization of Nehemiah. Uh, they came from another black-led organization in Denver and they were coming just to see what we do and just to collaborate and it was such a blessing with our staff. People loved it, absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, but as she was speaking, she was talking and strategizing with some of our more elementary education individuals and they were talking about their struggles in uh, the public school system. And they're all black individuals who are just talking about some of the systems and structures that made it difficult. And they were talking about specifically uh, the, the lack of accessibility for Latino families in the community who would show up to parent meetings and parents would show up and they'd, 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 they'd want to contribute but they couldn't understand necessarily the language being in English. So they would have headphones in that would translate and it would take a little bit. It takes like 15 or seconds to so to really catch up. 
And the English-speaking parents were getting really mad and frustrated at parent meetings because parent meetings were taking too long. Because they were just, because we had to wait for all this translation to happen, and they, they kind of started to really get frustrated and express that irritation. So what this individual who visited us suggested is they said, hey, what if we do something a little different? What if, instead of every meeting being in English, what if we invited some of our Latino families to lead the meetings? And we had them in Spanish. And we had the English speakers put on the headphones. And we had them do this process. And what if instead of it just being a one-time thing, what if three times a year, and it's monthly meetings, what if three out of the 12 months of the year we had that happen? And what if those three times of the year were random and nobody knew before they showed up? They all just had to show up and come. They saw a transformation because they saw people, the people who would come, the English-speaking families would come and they learned and they sat through and they recognized because they had to be the ones who had it translated for them and they said, wow, we didn't realize what this was like. The Spanish-speaking families came and said, wow, we get to lead. We get to set the agenda. We get to set the tone for these meetings. We get to talk about what the issues we actually have are. And those English-speaking families went, oh, I didn't even realize these were some of the issues. And those Spanish-speaking families all began to invite their parental friends who would show up. And it became a space where it was no longer consistently other it was consistently, I'm at home here. The unity that could be created in that space allowed transformation, which allowed the success of Spanish-speaking families and is creating a better space for everyone because everyone, including the Spanish-speaking families, grow and learn and are better off because of it. We're producing a better society as all of us do this together. We have ways of placing systems and structures that, that can maybe counter that. But God doesn't look at people and say you're gonna be excluded because you're a foreigner. God, when he hears those questions of will I be excluded because I'm different, because I maybe not fit in, says you will be included in my walls. When people ask the question, do I have anything to contribute, it feels like in this setting, in this context, perhaps other people treat me in a way where maybe I don't have anything to contribute. God says, I'm going to give you a name better than that even, and you have something to contribute. The question for us today in our communities and our churches is this. Are we creating spaces where people feel that they are foreigners or eunuchs in the sense that they have nothing to contribute and they're other? Are we creating spaces to allow everybody to feel at home? Not because they feel comfortable, perfect all the time, not because it always feels good, because that's not reality, but where people want to and choose to say, I love you and I'm choosing unity with you because I see that you are choosing unity and love with me and respect in me. God includes the excluded and welcomes them inside his house to be at home.
will we in our community